This is The Drunk Projectionist. Today, we're taking you on a ride with three gangsters. The first few shots are rather banal. These three men in a car. And, you know, at the time, 1990, when you see the movie, if you were a film buff, you knew Ray Liotta from Something Wild. This is author Glenn Kenny. Glenn has written a book about Goodfellas. If you were seeing the movie as a Scorsese fan, you certainly knew De Niro, you certainly knew Pesci. So you're in this car with these two, at least two familiar faces, and they're um, they're playing sort of tough guys. One of them is asleep and they're driving and you don't know what they're doing. That's the thing, you don't know what they're doing. And then the sound happens. Jimmy. And, you know, for the, for the time being, you're as confused about it as they are. Is flat? No. What the fuck? You better blow over and see. Yeah. And then they stop the car and boom, there's a guy in the trunk covered in blood. And they not only stab him several times, but they shoot him several times. And you're like, well, what's that about? Because you don't know who the guy is and you don't know why he's in there and you don't know why Pesci's character is so mad. And you don't know why De Niro's character is so exasperated that he pulls out the gun and starts shooting just to make sure this guy is dead. And it's it's also repellent. You know, the guy's already in a swaddled in a blood-covered sheet. It gets bloodier and bloodier after Pesci's character stabs the guy. And then they're, they're, they're shooting. And then the whole screen goes red. So it's also horrible and violent and repellent and gross. And then you have that close-up of Ray Liotta, and he says, As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And unless you're already sort of a Tommy DeSimone-style psychotic, your response to that is going to be, Really? In a way, the, the, the whole film is encapsulated in that one scene. And then there, to, to put the cherry on top, there's the incredibly sardonic use of the uh, Tony Bennett song, Rags to Riches. My clothes may still be torn and tattered. To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. love is all. Wow, what a beginning to a movie. This is The Drunk Projectionist. I'm Todd Melby. On this episode, we're hanging out with Glenn Kenny, the author of Made Men, the story of Goodfellas. 30 plus years after its release, Goodfellas still packs a punch. Or should I say a kick in the head? Martin Scorsese directed the movie. It's based on Wise Guy, a book by Nicholas Pileggi about the gangster Henry Hill. It stars Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Lorraine Baracco. The movie is renowned for so many things. It's long tracking shots, wisecracking and crazy violent Pesci, a bloody opening, and so many wonderful faces of middle-aged Italian guys. I don't know where to start. 
but Glenn Kenny does. He's going to break it all down for us. It's Made Men, the story of Goodfellas, today on The Drunk Projectionist. They knew uh, in the first draft of the screenplay, they knew they were going to open the film with the killing of, of, of Billy Bats, but then they cut it back even more because in the original screenplay, they did show the whole situation of Billy Bats busting uh, Tommy's chops a little bit and then Tommy going going nuts and you know instigating the killing of him. They were smart to actually you know introduce this scene as it's coming to a tentative end because it's not even ended there. They have to dig up his body and bury him somewhere else because they find out that the body is going to be um, inadvertently exhumed by the building of some condos on, on where the, uh, uh, on where the, on the land where they buried him. So it's not, you know, the, the, the saga of Billy Bats, once it's explained, turns into a kind of a never ending story that culminates in Tommy's being whacked at a ceremony where he thinks he's going to be a made man. So, but the thing is, yeah, you're like, why? So why did you always want to be a gangster? Because this doesn't look so great, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. And and I really like it like an hour later, and I rewatched this scene last night. So an hour later, Billy Bats is killed. They're having dinner, like a midnight after hours dinner, you know, in that great scene with uh, Catherine Scorsese. Well, that's the whole thing. It's not a scheduled after hours dinner. Tommy thinks he's going to go in and he he's he needs to get some implements to do more dirty work because of something or other that he needs to get a shovel. Right, right. They're going to bury him. Exactly. And he comes in and he's trying to sneak in and boom, his mother, played by Catherine Scorsese, the mother of Martin Scorsese, and playing the scene inspired by the way she used to feed her son and his friends when they'd be out at NYU till all hours of the morning working on films, editing, writing scripts. Right. Uh, feeds them pasta and beans. Uh, she just comes out and uh, says, "No, no, you got to stay. I got to make dinner." And they have this whole ridiculous dinner <laughs> yes. where they're laughing. Uh, they're laughing about the killing, and then you have that you know dolly out the window, and you know you hear him banging the uh, the inside of the trunk trying to get out. It's really horrific, and it and it's there that it really goes into a kind of a a very mordant kind of black comedy, which the whole film is infused with. When the movie first came out, Scorsese says, "I don't normally like to watch my movies, but uh, I like to watch this one because it's so funny." Uh, and you're like, eh, "Well, you know, it is. I mean, that's the that's the, one of the ways the movie has been misunderstood because it has so many comedic bits, including." the bamboo lounge how am i funny biz, uh, business it does it does and and your book inspired me to watch italian american uh, martin scorsese's uh, documentary about his parents that's it that's more like it lovey-dovey sort of you know they say as you get older your love grows stronger so for some reason it is getting a little stronger you know right daddy he's bashful yeah i know that's yeah, so a much a much more sweet natured uh, depiction <laughs> of Italian American life than Goodfellas is. True, true. But the great thing about that is, like, once you see his mom on camera, you understand. Oh yeah, this is why 
you know, we love her so much in that scene is because she's just this person who is, you know, gently teasing her husband in the documentary. And, you know, he's, she's making him blush and she's just not um, she's not afraid of the camera. She's outgoing. She talks about meatballs. Uh, you can completely understand why he cast her and why he wanted her in this role. Well, I wanted to start. I wanted to you, you were going to tell us about the sauce. You were going to show us how to do the sauce. Well, what should I say? Well, you can, you're going you're gonna to get up and show it to us, but I wanted to know who, you know, how did you learn it? Well, what do you ask me? About the sauce. Uh, how, who, who, how did you learn how to make sauce? Well, I'm supposed to be talking to you? You could talk to yes. me, you could talk to them, it doesn't matter. I'll be over here. I'll be over here. Uh, shall I mention your name? No. Doesn't matter. Yeah, you mentioned my name. Yeah. You want, what should I say? You want me to know, you want me to tell you how <laughs> my, the, how, how I learned how, how to make yes. sauce? No, no. How did you learn well, how to that, make sauce? Why don't you ask me the question? Don't you hear that then? No. I mean, if you would ask me a question, I would answer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it now. How, right? I want to know how you learned how to make sauce. Who taught you? Who taught it to you? How long? I mean, how many years? How many years you've been doing it? And I want to see you do it. She's kind of a good luck charm for him. She was in his films when he was making them at NYU. Uh, she's in uh, "It's Not Just You, Murray." She was supposed to have been in Taxi Driver. She was going to be the first fare that Travis picked up. Oh wow! And they sh- they shot the scene, but they they cut it out. So I think he he puts her in there as a good luck charm, or you know, until she until she passed, and then he started he started putting his dad in the films too. His dad wasn't eager to be in the films at all, <laughs> you know, during the NYU period, when Catherine, uh, who was called Kate by uh, all who knew her, would participate in uh, Marty's films and uh, would make food for for his crew. Charles. Um, Marty's dad would say, "You, you're all a bunch of, you're all crazy." Um, <laughs> yeah, you really get that get that sense when you watch the documentary. But then, but then, but then, he wanted to make sure his dad, who had been a garment center worker, was around Goodfellas a lot because he needed someone to make sure that the collars on those long collared shirts were ironed just right, they had the proper stiffness. And he felt only his dad and mom had the secret to that, so he had them around. And then he cast his dad in a role as Vinny. And just sort of had his dad interact with these guys. And um, that was enough in terms of performance. Although, you know, um, his father understood these people. He wasn't mob affiliated himself. But growing up in Little Italy, uh, mob people were people that everybody knew. They kind of ran the neighborhood and looked after the neighborhood to a certain extent. And so uh, Charles and Catherine knew how to deal with them. They'd get, you know, they'd be told, you know, don't go on Mott Street at X time because, you know, somebody's and the implication was, you know, well, because something's going to happen. Something's going to go down. Somebody's going to get whacked, you know, and so that's why they needed to stay away. So, um, you know, this was this was just their environment. So they understood how those people talked, how they did their business. When Charles is on the phone is Vinny talking to um de niro robert de niro he you know part of the reason the the performance is as natural as it is is because charles and robert de niro knew each other socially from from working with marty but you know uh vinny says uh, he's gone and there was nothing anybody could do about it and that was a euphemism that was a street euphemism which means they had to they had to kill him they had to kill him that's what he's talking about when he's talking about tommy so and similarly in the prison scenes where he's talking about don't put too many onions in the sauce and then puts the pork and he says that's the flavor that's you know that's charles himself talking about making food so you know this is just how he incorporated his own memories 
of real life and his own experiences in it in Little Italy with his folks into into this movie. Yeah, it really helped make it a richer movie. I mean, clearly, I mean, based on what you wrote, it, it seems to be super familiar territory for the director because he grew up in this neighborhood and in this milieu. You know, people talk about Scorsese as being someone who makes gangster movies. If you really look at his filmography, you know, gangster movies don't even cover 20% of his output. I mean, strictly gangster movies. Because, you know, Raging Bull has a mob-affiliated story element, but it's not really a mob story. Scorsese himself actually considers Mean Streets to be a gangster movie. And you don't even have to look at it that way, uh, really, because it's about these guys who are on the periphery of the gangster world who kind of get too caught up in it. But, you know, if he says so, then we can say so. And then his gangster trilogy was essentially going to be Mean Streets, Goodfellas, and Casino. And that was it. Those are his strictly gangster movies. The Departed is a gangster movie, but it's Boston. It's not his gangsters. And it's a, it's a police movie more than it is a gangster movie. If you follow genres, as I'm sure you do, we, we genre people tend to make more distinctions than ordinary civilian moviegoers. So for a lot of ordinary civilian moviegoers, they say, ah, gangst, you know, crime, gangster movie. You know, it's not the same thing. But then eventually, you know, The Irishman makes it a quartet. And The Irishman is something... He came to through De Niro. But um, these characters are, you know, these characters are very real to him because of his knowledge of them from um, from his own childhood. There's so many um, little pieces of Goodfellas that Scorsese was very insistent on making as authentic as possible because he wanted to recreate what he remembered from growing up. And one of them has to do with the Copacabana scene. Thank you, sir. All right, see you later. Thanks. What are you doing? You're leaving your car? Watch, it's a car for me. It's easier than leaving it out of the garage and waiting. It's a lot quicker that way. You know, there's a long, famous Steadicam shot, handheld, but with a device that stabilizes the camera. I like going this way. It's better than waiting in the line. Shot was put together by Scorsese in very close collaboration with his cinematographer, Michael Bauhaus. They added little bits of business to the shot as they were uh, testing it out for Scorsese. <laughs> How you doing, Gino? How are you? Good, good. Hey. Every time I come here, every time you do, don't you work? Onto the floor of the club where seeing a wise guy coming in, a waiter will. Uh, hand carry a table and put some chairs in front of it with a ice bucket full of champagne, make it all ready for the guy. Once they had all come up with what they wanted to do, uh, the one thing Scorsese said when he saw the test version of the shot is, uh, you don't have your, uh, you don't have that table coming out fast enough. We need, we need that table to fly. We need that table to fly out there. Because this was what he remembered as a teenager, going with his buddies to see um, shows at the Copa. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Copacabana is proud to present the king of the one-liners, Henny Youngman. It only took about seven takes. Henny Youngman, playing himself, kept flubbing the line. Take my wife, please. I take my wife everywhere, but she finds her way home. 
he felt so much pressure that he couldn't get out his uh, his most famous line. So uh, that was kind of a weird irony. Dr. Welser was here, wonderful doctor, gave a guy six months to live, couldn't pay his bill, gave another six months. Let's talk about a couple of other fantastic shots from the movie. There are many, but uh, I remember reading about the Bamboo Lounge opening shot where all the wise guys introduce themselves. And yeah. we meet all those folks like Freddie No-Nos, Pete the Killer, Fat Andy. Larry McConkey, the Steadicam operator, told me he actually enjoyed doing that shot more than he enjoyed doing the Copa shot, which he, which he also enjoyed. But he said, you know, that's more of a real Steadicam shot because the camera's going where 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 you can't you know it's going over uh railings and you know levitating to a certain extent when it gets all the way to the back of the bar there was jimmy and tommy and me and there was anthony stabile how you doing frankie carbone but also what made it fun was the fact that during the whole process of shooting it scorsese was following him around and doing the narration he he was saying here's pete the killer and then there was pete the killer who was sally balls's brother and you had nicky eyes what's up guy and mikey franchese and jimmy two times who got that nickname because he said everything twice like i'm gonna go get the papers get the papers and these guys, these guys in these shots, some of whom turn up later in the film, but some of whom don't come back. Most of the, not a lot of actors among them. Most of them are authentic, either wise guys, uh, ex-wise guys, or cops. Uh, or ex-cops, or ex-cops turned wise guys, or crooked cops turned wise guys. I mean, they were all the real thing. And, uh, you know, these were the guys, as one of the casting people said, they didn't like to give out their social security numbers to payroll. So it was hard to get them, uh, you know, their day rate. We'll be back with more from Glenn Kenny in just a moment. But first, let me tell you about my book. It's similar to Glenn's book in that it's about a movie, but a very different movie, Fargo. It's just out and it's titled, A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, the untold story of the making of Fargo. With a foreword by William H. Macy, the book tells the behind the scene tale of how Joel and Ethan Cohn wrote, directed, and edited this 1996 classic. Again, the title, A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, the untold story of the making of Fargo. Check it out at Todd Melby, that's me, at toddmelby.com slash book, or wherever you buy your books. One of the surprising things I learned from Glenn was the influence of Jules and Jim on Goodfellas. You don't look at Goodfellas and say, hey, this is like Jules and Jim. Tu m'as dit je t'aime, je t'ai dit attends, j'allais dire prends-moi, tu m'as dit va-t'en. It's actually a very potent influence on the film. He, he talked about, if you watch Jules and Jim, there's a, the opening sequence before it settles into the storyline. There's a whole narrated business with really quick cuts of the friendship of Jules and Jim, their um, respective loneliness, their search for romance and the ideal woman. They go to this island and see a sculpture of a woman's head that's done by a friend of theirs, and they say, that's her. 
And eventually they meet her. I mean, and I mean, they really meet her because uh, Catherine is the model for that sculpture. But it's done very, very fast. And uh, what is it uh, that, that Scorsese said in our conversation? Between that and some of the shots in Godard's A Woman is a Woman, going out on the street and seeing things from above and seeing things from street level and following backwards and, you know, all this stuff was very inspiring to Scorsese. And, uh, you know, what did I say to him? I said, it's, a, it's all, it's at the speed of thought. And he says, yes, that's exactly it, the speed of thought. That's what I want in some of the sequences of, of Goodfellas, for things to be happening at the speed of thought. Not, which is fast. Not just the... Yeah, which is you know not just not just the way they're they're happening in space and time, but in the way that the the consciousness processes them, which is why you know which is why the scene at the end when when Henry is uh, going to get uh, arrested is as fast as it is. It's not you know it's not even really that fast in real life, but you know it's the it's the speed of thought. Would a good example of that be when we switch from the narration? Of of Henry's narration to the narration of Karen's narration during the dating scene. Yes, a little bit. It's not as frantic at that point, but it is interesting because we have Scorsese and Pileggi respecting this point of view. I thought he was really obnoxious. He kept fidgeting around. You don't mind, do you? It's very annoying. It's uh, Anazette. Good, huh? Mm. Yeah, you probably do a lot better with Manischewitz, but I look funny on my table. <laughs> Ready? Henry, lighten up. We just got here. What are you doing? Before it was even time to go home, he was pushing me into the car and then pulling me out. It was ridiculous. Pileggi interviewed Henry Hill, and he's the primary voice, but he did interview Karen. And he even interviewed uh, Henry's girlfriend, the uh, woman who's depicted in Goodfellas as Janice. He interviewed her, and there's a lot more sort of resentment and back and forth <laughs> between Karen and this woman than, than there is depicted in the film. The, the film actually uh, tempers it down a little bit. The real-life Janice uh, is, is highly indignant that uh, Karen uh, persuaded Henry to, uh, to convert to Judaism to get married and actually get circumcised as an adult, which is an incredibly painful thing to go through. How much, you know, when I, I'm a big fan of The Sopranos and in rewatching Goodfellas, I thought, oh my God, there's so many Sopranos actors in, in this movie. And, and of course, you point out that it was undoubtedly a big inspiration for the creator of The Sopranos. Yeah, no, uh, Michael Imperioli, when I spoke to him, talked about uh, David Chase referring to, this, to Goodfellas as his Koran. Certainly <laughs> because of David, but, but there's also an interesting thing, you know, David Chase's Scorsese hasn't commented on The Sopranos. He he he's 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 kind of indicated his approval of it. Uh, he says, "Yeah, it was all right." I mean, that's as far as he's gone. Mainly because he just probably hasn't watched it all that much. I'm not saying he should watch it and that he'd love it if he did, but you know, he's got other priorities. Is the thing. But what is interesting is not just that. David Chase was inspired by this film. Sopranos also reflects David Chase's own background, as I think we'll see in the upcoming film that he made uh, about the Saints of Newark. But I think for David Chase, it's almost a sense of the, the, the Goodfellas giving him permission to try and tell these stories in a way that was more true and had more integrity than had been done before. And yeah, it also did turn out to be a source of, of, of acting talent. These real life wise guys turned actors, 
musician Stevie Van Zandt, you know, who hadn't been an actor, but, you know, kind of had the walk, you know, and the, uh, the attitude and could play that very well and who knew the territory. That was important to chase about someone like uh, Gandolfini. Gandolfini was a masterful actor, you know, and it's a shame that he's gone. Uh, Van Zandt a little less seasoned, but they both knew the territory really, really, really intimately. And I think that was hugely important for Chase. Absolutely. I want to ask you about uh, editor Thelma Schoonmacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really admire her work. I've read some interviews that she's done, including her take on the you think I'm a fucking clown scene. <laughs> yeah. And and she talked about the medium shots, but I'm wondering if you could talk about it based on your expertise and 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 what you know about the editing of that particular scene. Yeah, that's one of the few scenes that was shot with two cameras because you need to have the timing just right in terms of the reactions. If you're looking at it with the uh, with the ultimate aim of invisible editing, there is still certain discontinuities of glass placement and stuff. I'm not going to say that they don't pay attention to that, but one thing I talk about in the in the film in the, in my book Made Men uh, is the fact that neither Schoonmacher nor Scorsese are usually dogmatic when it comes to matching shots. The when 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 uh, Goodfellas didn't win any Oscars. Thelma Schoonmacher said um, she was at the ceremony and there was an, uh, she was with someone, the person who did win the Oscar, who did Dances with Wolves. And the person actually asked Schoonmacher, why did you let that bad cut happen in Goodfellas? And she said, which one? There are dozens of them. Her point of view, and it has always been this, you know, there's an apocryphal story that she has said matching is for pussies. But her point of view is that and, and Scorsese shares this, is that always use the take that has the best and most convincing emotion. That's that's it. So there's a scene after the Bamboo Lounge scene where the owner of the Bamboo Lounge is complaining to Pauly about the fact that, you know, Tommy owes him $7,000 and whenever he brings it up, he breaks a bottle over his head. And Sonny Darrow, who plays the owner of the Bamboo Lounge, not a very experienced actor, playing against Paul Sorvino, who's a very experienced actor. And um, there's one reaction where um, in the intercutting, Sorvino's cigar is in his mouth, and then all of a sudden it's in his hand. It doesn't match. But Schoonmacher said, I, I do that cut every time because the reaction on Sonny Darrow was the best reaction we had. And that's what we were interested in. And she said, if you're looking at the where the cigar is during the scene, then, you know, we're not doing our job anyway, because you're not supposed to be looking at that. You're supposed to be looking at the people. So, yeah, she would argue that the most important thing is emotion, not continuity. Yeah, exactly. And do other editors now having seen, you know, the fantastic work that she does, have other editors been like, wow, maybe I should reconsider my choices? No, I think that Thelma, like Scorsese himself, is a maverick. I, I think that, you know, there's something particular about the relationship with Schoonmacher and Scorsese that's not going to be replicated in our lifetime, I don't think. Um, you know, they're like Powell and Pressburger, um, this kind of trust, you know, they're almost, they're not, I wouldn't call them co-directors and she would certainly send you packing if you were to try and say something like that. 
you know, when Michael Powell congratulated her on her Oscar for Raging Bull, she chastised him and said, that that was Marty. That belonged to Marty. Don't you say that. But then she married Michael Powell, so they got over it. But um, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think any other professional editors would be quite so frank about having a disregard for matching. You know, it's it's just not you're not supposed to say that. She is able to say it because she's such a strong individual, but also because she has such a strong collaborator in Scorsese and they think alike. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about um, the Scheinbach scene uh, as far as Scorsese with the shot reverse shot. I'll just read the sentence from your book. Uh, you write that Scorsese never does a static shot reverse shot pattern when he can be dollying in on a character before they land a verbal death blow. Why does he do that? In the script, we have the language is much less charged. And the original script is just uh, go home and get your damn shine box. He allowed the actors to modify the Scorsese allowed the actors to modify the wording in a way that they felt comfortable with and also a way that they felt would be more true to the scene. So both Pesci and Frank Vincent, who had a longstanding relationship with each other, that was sometimes, you know, uh, one of rivalry and uh, ill, not exactly ill will, but they were, they could hate each other the way only longtime close friends could hate each other, you know? So they adapted the dialogue to what was more comfortable. And I think that is where Scorsese's genius comes out because the rhythm of the scene is then determined by that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it makes it, it adds, it adds tension. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it all, you know, then because it's said the way it's said, you know, let's say you're the spectator here and that is said, you know, then you hold on it a little longer because you kind of have the same sense of disbelief, you know, hmm. the camera's reacting, you know, it's not just a passive observer. And also the, when it moves in on Pesci as he's getting angry and angrier, yeah. like the tension gets, gets ratcheted yeah. up. Yeah. And that's a function of the, 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 the camera following the dialogue, which is reflecting the, the increasing anger. It all melds together, you know. It's like the scene where um, Jimmy is trying to figure out whether to kill Maury, uh, the famous sunshine of your love scene. It's just, there's no dialogue there, but De Niro has to smoke, look down, look up, smoke, look down, look up. And the camera's moving in on him in slow motion and the music's playing at that kind of martial rhythm. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. And, you know, eventually De Niro's eye meets the camera lens head on, right? In slow motion, how, could you, how do you create that sort of synchronicity? It's incredible. But, I mean, they just work really hard. I mean, when I asked De Niro about that, he said, well, De Niro, you know, Marty, you'll say I need this slow shot and you need to look at this, and I do it. <laughs> and I mentioned that to Barbara Dafina, one of the producers of the film, and she said, well, yeah, that's pretty much how it comes down to, except lots of takes. It does. It does. Do you have a, a, a scene uh, that you especially like that isn't talked about much? <laughs> One that isn't talked about much. It's funny. All the scenes are, are kind of talked about. I love the courtroom scene when he bounds out of the witness box because it's such a because it's interesting because Scorsese has deaccelerated the film. After he's caught and he's got the gun to his head and they take him in, there's no more music in the movie. 
the scenes are 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 shot. They're not less dynamic, but they're more straightforward. They're more conventional. And the movie really slows down. And then all of a sudden you're you're in the courtroom and Henry's there and those looks on Sorvino and De Niro looking at him like they want to, you know, they're pointing daggers at his heart. But then he starts talking directly to you, to the camera, and then he jumps out of the witness box. Didn't matter. Didn't mean anything. When I was broke, I would go out and rob some more. We ran everything. We paid off cops. We paid off lawyers. We paid off judges. Everybody had their hands out. Everything was for the taking. And now it's all over. And that's the hardest part. Today, everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce and I got egg noodles and ketchup. I'm an average nobody. Get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. I think that's just beautifully judged filmmaking and, and beautifully executed filmmaking. You know, it's just incredible. It is, and it saved us all from a courtroom scene that we've seen right. time exactly. and time and time yeah. again, and then gets us right to witness protection and gets us the end of the movie. It's, it's just like movie. that. Yep, it's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Again, I often talk in the book about the storytelling economy in both the script and the actual film. You know, they, they, they have a lot of enjambments and things like that that you don't necessarily notice until you look at it how the burning down of the uh, the torching of the bamboo lounge is is dovetail to setting up uh the introduction to uh of henry and karen you know these little things that they've put in the script that make the the narrative flow much more uh easily but with the sense of flowing organically at the same time all right our time is up thank you Thank you, Todd. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate uh, appreciate you uh, your interest in the book. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And uh, let me know about other podcasts and other people you interview because uh, you clearly know your stuff and uh, you ask great questions. So it's been a pleasure to speak with you. That's Glenn Kenny, the author of Bane Men, the story of Goodfellas. I learned so much reading this book. Did you know that Saul and Elaine Bass created the title sequence? I learned that. I also love the fact that Glenn included one of Henry Hill's recipes in the book. You know that kitchen scene near the end of the movie when Henry is making dinner and also trying to sell drugs and being obsessed with helicopters all at the same time? Well, that recipe that Henry was making was his brother Michael's favorite ziti recipe. And it had a very straightforward name. It's called Michael's Favorite Ziti with Meat Sauce. <laughs> and so the whole recipe is in the book. So now what I have to do, of course, is get me some pork butt, veal shanks, a lot of basil, parsley, meatballs, and make me some of that favorite ziti with meat sauce. And of course, I'll make sure that I slice the garlic super thin with a razor blade. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. <laughs>